Welcome to A New Republic, An Oral History of the Indian Constitution. Episode 12, The Nehru Report. Welcome back. In our last episode, we spoke about the ill-fated Simon Commission. The entire project, as we learned last time, ended up becoming an exercise in futility as the commission itself was ignored both in London and in India. So from the point of view of constitutional history, the Simon Commission seems really quite irrelevant. But from the point of view of Indian history, and indeed the history of the entire South Asian region, the Simon Commission would set in motion a whole bunch of chain reactions that would have lasting impact on independent India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. The Simon Commission for me is one of those odd chapters in history where an apparently minor event has massive consequences, nearly all of them unintended and all of them disconnected from the original event. Kind of like the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand that led to the First World War. Now, I've been reading a whole bunch of books on the outbreak of World War 1, and it's quite fascinating to see how nobody particularly liked the Archduke. His funeral was very poorly attended and he wasn't even particularly popular in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And yet his death changed the world. So what unintended consequences did the Simon Commission have? Broadly it did two things. First, it energized the independence movement in India. Previously the movement had been more or less the exclusive purview of a small educated elite. By the time the commission returned to London, the movement had expanded in breadth and depth and had become much more popular secondly and perhaps more importantly the whole simon commission episode led to a group of very smart indians to take a shot at writing a new constitutional document themselves without any help from london this was the famous nehru report a largely well meaning document that would eventually lead to partition and lasting acrimony between the hindus and muslims in the region So how did the report come about and how did it drive a deep violent wedge between these communities The story of the Nehru report really begins with the assassination of the Arya Samaj reformer Swami Shraddhanand in Delhi in December 1926 by a Muslim fanatic Now this was already a time of great animosity between the Arya Samaj and Muslims especially in Punjab Swami Shraddhanand's killing made matters much worse Shortly afterwards the indian national congress met in guwahati and at the conference the working committee of the party was asked to confer with leaders of both communities and to draw up a plan to somehow defray tensions and restore peace now what we need to keep in mind is that this whole hindu muslim animosity within air quotes is not a black box of general hatred and ideology etc etc it already had reasons and it had some very crystal clear clear cut reasons and there are two threads to this animosity the first is social and cultural while the second is political and has to do with the idea of joint electorates seat reservations and the fallback of the um, lucknow pact of 1916 now keep in mind that at this point there is already a form of limited representational government in india and the system currently in the 1920s i mean incorporates seat reservations for minorities something that is extremely controversial and had already turned into a festering sore in the indian political landscape of that period because of these two broad reasons social and political things were tremendously complicated 
But reading through this history of this period, I think that this is what the leaders of the time, especially Congress leaders, thought. They thought that look, there was little you could do about social and cultural tensions. You could ask both communities to coexist in peace and harmony, but there's realistically little more you can do than that. On the political question, however, you could try something. If they could somehow find a structure for Indian government that brought together Hindus and Muslims. got them working together maybe even trusting each other perhaps this would have a positive fallout on social relationships as well at the same time while all this was going on in london the british were mooting the all foreigner simon commission to review indian government so as far as the congress was concerned the strategy seemed straightforward indians had to draft their own constitution at the earliest and with this one stone they could hit two birds they could deal with london's tendency to dismiss india's ability to govern herself and the second bird was hindu muslim unrest so at the 1927 madras conference of the congress the party passed a resolution asking the working committee of the party to draft a swaraj constitution for india now so far maybe this sounds like kind of a congress pet project but in fact the working committee sent out invitations to a huge list of dozens of different organizations to be part of the swaraj constitution process this included bodies such as the national liberal federation the hindu mahasabha the all india muslim league the central sikh league the general council of all burmese associations the indian association of calcutta the dravida mahajana sabha the bombay non brahman party the bombay workers and peasants party and at least four different parsi associations in fact it's remarkable it's remarkable how politically diverse india used to be before it actually became a democracy quite remarkable but it quickly became clear to everyone involved that drafting a constitution with so many people giving input simultaneously would become chaotic impossible so in may 1928 an all parties conference was held in bombay and at this conference it was suggested that a small committee work on this by themselves this way at least they would prepare a draft which all these parties could then later argue and quibble over it was decided that this committee would have 10 members motilal nehru and subhash chandra bose were the two congress members with motilal nehru serving as chairman and the report is named after him the other eight members represented various interest groups i'll read from the report here i quote sir ali imam and shuaib qureshi expressed the muslim point of view mr ms ane and mr mr jaikar the hindu sabhas the hindu mahasabha's attitude sardar mangal singh represented the sikh league satej bahadur sapru the liberal viewpoint and mr nm joshi the interests of labor close quote the committee met officially 25 times several times unofficially and finally submitted their report around a month late on 10th august 1928 in allahabad now last month here in london i was able to borrow an edition of the nehru report published in september 1928 from a library it was presented to the london library 86 years ago by ishwar sharan who i believe was an associate of gandhi and has a degree college named after him in allahabad now there is not enough time in this podcast to go into all the details of the nehru report but if you can obtain a copy i do recommend you read it if not in full then at least the introductory chapter that outlines the key issues that faced the drafters of this new homegrown idea of an indian constitution there were six key issues first 
Would India still be a part of the empire? Would it be a dominion, a republic or something in between? Second, would London support India's answer to the first question? Third, how would minorities be protected? Fourth, who would control the Indian army? Fifth, what would happen to all the princely states? And finally, sixth, what would happen to current European-owned businesses in India? The entire Nehru report, when you look at it from a little distance, is really a structured answer to all these questions. And I wouldn't be surprised if you saw the faint echoes of this sense of priority in the constitution that India has today. We continue to grapple with many of the same questions of securing national, individual and collective interests. Now, the Nehru report is an extremely well-written document, drafted by people who I think were extremely aware of the world around them and had a certain confidence and ambition in India's ability to run herself. For instance, right in 1928, the Nehru report audaciously suggests that India will have universal adult suffrage. I quote, Any artificial restriction on the right to vote in a democratic constitution is an unwarranted restriction on democracy itself. It is quite a different thing to say that a system of universal adult suffrage is difficult to work. But the difficulty, however great, has to be faced if what is contemplated is full responsible government in its true sense and with all its implications. Close quote. In similar eloquent terms, the report goes on to talk about, for instance, why there should be two houses of parliament, why the civil service needs restructuring, and so on and so forth. There are many interesting things in the draft constitution. For instance, under the section on fundamental rights, clause 16 says that no breach of con contract, of service, or abetment thereof shall be made a criminal offence. Clause 18 says that every citizen shall have the right to keep and bear arms in accordance with regulations made in that behalf. Section 86 says, with I think great foresight, that the re redistribution of provinces should take place on a linguistic basis on the demand of the majority of the population of the area concerned subject to financial and administrative considerations. A problem that India continues to grapple with today. The Nehru report also drew up a list of central and provincial subjects the centre is given purview over things like foreign trade, currency, railways, intelligence and, interestingly, archaeology. The provinces, meanwhile, control land taxes, industries and industrial research, prisons and treasure troves. I wonder what would have happened if somebody found a treasure trove that had archaeological value. Mm -hmm. Remarkably, the Nehru report allows provinces to borrow money on the sole credit of the province. This is something that local governments in India still actually don't do very much. Overall, the report also has these great shifts in scope, something that seems to be a feature of all such constitutional documents. So while on one page, it talks of the pitfalls of federalism or the problems of separate electorates, on another page, it talks of who will control certain museums in Calcutta or Bombay. But forget all that. What about the most contentious issues? What about the issue that the report calls communal aspects. Chapters 2 and 3 deal exclusively with the communal aspect and the committee makes a number of decisions on these aspects. And to make it simple for this podcast, I will choose just to talk about the four key issues that the authors themselves divided this communal aspect into. Number one, separate electorates for Muslims. The Nehru report dismisses the idea outright and says that any meaningful form of representation must only have joint or mixed electorates. 
there would be no constituency set aside for a wholly Muslim electorate. Number two, the northwest frontier province in Baluchistan would enjoy the same status as any other province with the same conditions of mixed electorates and seat reservations. Number three, Sindh would be split from Bombay and made into a separate province. The fourth issue, and the most contentious one, was the issue of reservation of seats. I will try to explain this without confusing the complete heck out of listeners. Now, the genesis of this issue is very simple. Many Muslim leaders insisted on some form of reservation for Muslims in central and provincial legislatures. Without this safeguard, they were afraid, government in India would insufficiently represent the large Muslim minority, which according to the 1921 census accounted for 24.1% of the total population. So Muslim leaders felt that Hindus would dominate government in free India as and when India got freedom. Now, this is a simple problem. The solutions suggested, on the other hand, were extremely complex. The Nehru Report Committee themselves considered several proposals that could possibly satisfy both Hindu and Muslim uh, leaders and their organizations. This ranged from um, reservation for minorities and quite unintuitively reservation for majorities, a combination of both reservations, a mutant bastard child of both reservations, and even proportional representation. So keep in mind, without confusing yourself, that I am talking of reservation of seats and not separate electorates. Let me explain with an example. Assume that we are talking of Lucknow and Lucknow is going to the polls. Under separate electorates, Lucknow would have a non-Muslim seat and perhaps a Muslim seat. And Muslims would vote, would have sole right to vote for the Muslim candidates and non-Muslims would vote for the non-Muslim candidate. Now this, like I said, the Nehru report author said would not happen. No more separate electorates. On the other hand, if Lucknow was a reserved Muslim seat, everyone in Lucknow would vote for any candidate to that one seat as long as all the candidates were Muslims. Now, let me be frank. I've read through this section of the report several times and read some backing documents. And it's still not entirely clear to me what the implications of each of these options were and what exactly Muslims and Hindus felt about each one. But one thing is very clear, both sides had little to no intention of arriving at a compromise. There was no chance they would agree on anything. If the Hindus liked something, the Muslims would block it. If the Muslims liked something, the Hindus would block it. And no one knew this better than the authors of the Nehru report. Still, these brave chaps went ahead and arrived at a decision that was not unanimous, that was dissent within the committee. They recommended that there would be seat reservations both in the central and the provincial legislatures. At the center, Muslims would be offered reservation of seats in provinces in which they were a minority, and this reservation would be in proportion to the population. Muslims could contest other non-reserved seats as well. They, they reserved that right. A similar reservation and right were extended to non-Muslims only in the northwest frontier province. In the provincial legislatures, they had exactly the same arrangement, except in Punjab and Bengal, where there would be no reservations whatsoever. I think this is because Hindus and Muslims were somewhat evenly matched in these two provinces and it would have been very difficult to decide how much to reserve for each community. Which, which left the authors with one main uh, Muslim demand and that was a one-third reservation of seats for Muslims outright in the central government, which uh, the Nehru report basically rejected outright. So uh, that was completely, it was discussed and they said it was impossible. The most 
we could decide on or the most the committee could decide on was this form of uh, proportional represent proportional seat reservation in the central and provincial legislatures i hope that is clear and i hope you remember that much so now that they set the communal aspect aside uh, it goes on the nehru report goes on to present a compact outline of a government of india in 25 extremely tight pages of recommendations i feel that if you removed references to the king empire and commonwealth from these 25 pages it would be very hard for many lay people to tell the difference between the nehru report and the actual constitution of india it's actually a very sophisticated a very modern document now between the 28th and 31st of august 1928 the nehru report was tabled in front of the all parties conference in lucknow things seemed to have started well lala lajpatrai moved a resolution to thank the authors of the report everyone agreed to this resolution except one member hasrat mohani a great urdu poet and a founding member of the communist party of india decades later hasrat mohani would join the constituent assembly and again refused to sign off on the actual indian constitution however in the next couple of days of that uh, lucknow conference both the muslim league and the khilafat committee rejected the report many muslim leaders pointed out that the nehru report broke reservation arrangements that had been established many years previously in the lucknow pact of 1916 so the committee was asked to go back rework the report come back and the fourth and final all party conference was held in calcutta in december 1928 to give this revised report one more shot at this conference muhammad ali jinnah tabled four key amendments chief of them being a reiteration of the old demand for one third reservation for muslims in the central legislature to jinnah's disappointment all four amendments were rejected in fact by all accounts jinnah actually felt quite humiliated one biographer of jinnah hector bolito quotes jinnah saying afterwards this is the parting of the ways but this humiliation also offered jinnah an opportunity there was an ongoing leadership struggle within muslim politics in india at the time and jinnah seemed to have realized that championing the rights of muslims during this constitutional debate could help him unify all muslims under his stewardship so at the march 1929 meeting a few months after the december meeting where he got humiliated jinnah put forth his famous 14 points a list of demands to safeguard muslim interests in a future constitution of india the 14 points is a milestone in the history of partition and pakistan but it was not immediately evident that this was the case many non muslims immediately dismissed jinnah's 14 point list chief among them being jawaharlal nehru while the list's instant appeal amongst muslims also seemed to have been quite muted the 1929 conference of the muslim league where he presented this actually ended inconclusively for jinnah the next year jinnah left for london and did not return to india for 4 years this is one of the more controversial periods of his life because there are many theories about why he went back to london what he did there and why he came back in any case when he returned to india and resumed the second and more fateful phase of his political career the future qaidi azam and the 14 points would find a much more eager audience thus the entire episode of the nehru report ended with mixed results on the one hand it established certain fundamentals of indian constitutionalism that is carried on to this day which is a positive on the other hand it is the beginning of the end of unified british india and helped to deeply sow the idea of pakistan which depending on how you look on it is uh, negative but once again and this is a constant refrain in this podcast history the next big step the next big event 
in the history of the Indian constitution is once again motivated not by political change in India but political change in London. And this next big event is a set of three roundtable conferences that took place in London between 1930 and 1932. In the next episode of A New Republic, we will look at the political scene in England, we'll look at how it led to these conferences and then we'll discuss the conferences themselves. Before bidding farewell today, I'd like to leave you with a few personal and somewhat subjective thoughts on the Nehru report. First, when we talk about Hindu or Muslim interests, we are really talking of stands taken by certain community leaders of that time. It is impossible to say if this was the position of the majority of these communities in any or all of the provinces of British India. Let's not forget that in the Indian provincial elections of 1937, the Congress soundly beat the Muslim League in several seats reserved for Muslim candidates. This was another event that had a profound impact on Jinnah's political positions. Secondly, the Nehru report was not the only draft constitution to be drawn up by Indians. The report itself mentions other such drafts prepared by Annie Besant, Srinivasa Iyengar and the Independent Labour Party. Perhaps in a future episode of this podcast, I'll quickly survey these constitutions and look at what they talked about. Thirdly, I wonder how much of the experience of the Nehru report impacted the Congress's future approach towards such issues, you know, religious issues and uh, secular policy. It must have made everyone involved, including Jawaharlal Nehru, who served as secretary, I think, to Motilal Nehru. It must have made everyone involved much more reluctant to commit ideas to paper, preferring instead to leave such issues open and unsettled. And I think this is a tendency that still persists in the Congress party to this day. My fourth and final point may unsettle some listeners. But the more I've researched this podcast and the more I've read documents and letters, the more I feel that the popular freedom struggle narrative is somewhat flawed. The more I feel that freedom was secured not by protesters and agitators on the street, but by lawyers sitting across tables. No doubt Gandhi and his civil disobedience was a huge thorn in the side for the British, but without the constitutional work and political savvy of some of the leaders across many Indian parties, I doubt if the British would have handed over freedom at the time and in the manner that they did. Of course, this conviction of mine may change over time as we discuss more episodes, but it is a thought I would like to leave you with at this stage. So, I hope you enjoyed the somewhat confusing episode. If you need to go back and listen to it um, to make sure you're not confused between all-party conferences, National Congress meetings, Muslim League meetings, please do so. Um, it's an important episode in India's history and... Um, it kind of establishes many things for the story going forward. So take care. Speak to you next week. Bye-bye.